Good morning, everybody. I will sort out my stuff here. Let me just. Uh... It's good to be with you here today and uh, to share these Sabbath hours together. And it's a privilege to stand before you in the pulpit and to share with you part of the Word of God. I'd like to say a word of thanks to our singers this morning. That was a beautiful song. If it matters to us, if it matters to you, then it matters to the Master. Uh, what a beautiful um, truth was encapsulated in those words. Thank you so much for those words. Today we're going to continue through our uh, discussion on the Gospel of Mark. Last week we looked at Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 2. And today, uh, logically speaking, we're going to pick up on Mark chapter 3 and uh, our second service, Mark chapter 4. It reminds me of Calvin, actually. Uh, Calvin, the Swiss reformer, who was working his way through the book of Romans and uh, it, was took, it took him many years, a verse, uh, a verse every week. Uh, he got to about Romans 9. Then he went off to France for an extended period of time for some years. When he came back, guess where he picked up again? <laughs> the last verse that he'd be preaching on in the book of Romans. And uh, I don't think his congregation ever complained about that, though, because the Word of God is alive. What I find with the Word of God is that uh, you, may preach, uh, you may preach from a chapter, and you may think the message of the chapter is X, but somebody in the pews hears Y and somebody else hears Z, because we all come with different conditions of the human heart. And God speaks to us in different ways as we hear the Word of God um, expounded to us. And so it's my privilege to stand before you today and to share with you what God has impressed upon my heart uh, from God, Mark chapter 3. For those who are watching online, we give you a warm welcome again. We're delighted you can be joining us on this Sabbath day, wherever you are around the world. And so as we open the Bible, I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. We'll be working our way through this chapter today or this morning. As we open the Bible, I ask, uh, let's bow our heads and we ask for the Holy Spirit to bless us. Oh, Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the Word of God, that it is indeed is living that it pierceth the soul like a two-edged sword. Lord, I thank you that your word is like a searchlight that searches into every nook and cranny of our lives and reveals to ourselves the things we may not even want to admit about ourselves. And so we ask today, Father, as we um, chew on this passage of the word of God, that the same spirit who inspired its writing will speak to our hearts. And as Pastor Dennis shared in his prayer this morning, that we will be different people tonight to those who rose this morning. And may that change, Father, be because your spirit is shaping our hearts. And Lord, I ask that you speak through me and for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so, so far in Mark chapter 1 and 2, what have we seen so far? In Mark chapter 1, we've seen that Jesus has authority. He has authority over disease. He has authority over the demonic. And he has the authority to call disciples. In Mark chapter 2, though, we see that things start to go wrong. Because Jesus is preaching and the lepers are being cleansed, uh, the, the demons are being cast out of people, the sick are being cured, uh, the people are being fed spiritually, and uh, there are large crowds following Jesus, but all is not as it seems. Popular applause isn't necessarily a sign that something truly good is happening. Because in Mark chapter 2, the, the religious authorities are starting to engage in their opposition to Jesus Christ. And in Mark chapter 2, they're thinking in their hearts, who is it that can forgive sin? Isn't it only God can forgive sin? So why does Jesus claim the authority to forgive sin? As we go through Mark chapter 2, there's a series of, of uh, conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders, conflicts about fasting, conflicts about the keeping of the Sabbath, conflicts 
um, about uh, how to uh, deal with sinners. Jesus, he, he associates, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. He eats with what might be called the dregs of polite society uh, back then in, in first century Palestine. And so there is this, brew, this brewing conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities. And uh, so as we come to Mark chapter 3, Mark is continuing to focus on the question of the authority of Jesus, and he's talking first about the fact that Jesus' authority is a deadly authority. There are three kinds of authority we're going to look through today. How many authorities are there going to be today? Three, because everybody remembers things in three. Chapter 1, Jesus has authority over demons, disciples, and disease. And today we see that Jesus has three kinds of authority. And the first of those kinds of authority is found in the first six verses of this chapter. Jesus has a deadly authority. And what do I mean by that? So open your Bibles. We're going to pick up the story, Mark chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2. And it says there, Again, he, that is Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. They watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So Jesus, as was his custom, we know from Luke chapter 4, he worshipped in the synagogues on the Sabbath day. He's in the synagogue and on the Sabbath day, and there was a man there with a withered hand. Uh, technically, it's a dried up hand. It's a stiff hand. It is a hand that is of no use to anybody. But more critically for the purpose of this story, this is a chronic injury. This is not an acute or life-threatening injury. And that's the crux of the matter within this dispute with the Pharisees. The Jewish regulations of the time stated that it was permissible to offer first aid to somebody to prevent a wound from becoming worse, to prevent an injury from causing death, but the working towards a cure of a chronic disease was viewed as breaking the Sabbath, and that was regarded as work, and it must wait until the passing of the Sabbath hours. This hand was chronically withered. It hadn't just withered that morning when he woke up in the, in, in, got off his bed, and therefore this withered hand was beyond Sabbath intervention. Jesus was not supposed to heal this man with a withered hand. It says in verse 2, they were watching him. And my English version says they watched him. Uh, in the underlying Greek, it says they were watching him. It's like they were continuing to watch him. They were watching every motion that he was making. You know, every move you make, every breath you take, I'll be watching you. Uh, you might paraphrase this verse here. They were watching Jesus continually because they wanted to accuse him. And so, was Jesus going to heal this man, or was Jesus going to let him suffer through the Sabbath day? Jesus already had a reputation as a Sabbath breaker, as a blasphemer, as a friend of sinners and prostitutes, as an apostate from religious custom. Would he heal this man with a withered hand, or would he not? And Jesus knows what they're thinking, and so in verse 3 it said, And Jesus said to the man who had the withered hand, Come forward. Now, I don't know how many in this congregation here or watching online have a physical disability. I noticed three years ago when I broke my leg up in the Canadian Rockies, I fell and snapped my tibia and fibula in multiple places. Um, it wasn't a very pleasant experience. But what I noticed afterwards was that when you have a physical disability, you experience the world very differently. The world is set up for people who are physically abled. Just, uh, for instance, that August, uh, six weeks after my accident, I had to give a talk up here, and um, in order to get up here, I couldn't get up here, uh, so they put me in an armchair, and they hoisted me up onto the front of the platform here. Now, 
people chuckled, some of you are chuckling now, but for me it was kind of an embarrassing experience. It was a humiliating experience that I can't get up here on my own. People with disabilities are often treated as if they're mentally deficient as well. I noticed that when I was, I'd come into church on crutches, or I'd go to, go to work, or wherever it may be, and people say, are you okay? I'm like, my mind wasn't hurt by the breaking of my leg. Would you like some water? No, I can ask for water if I want for water, thank you very much. They, they talk down to you when you have a disability. And people with disabilities have incredible gifts and abilities. The fact that I broke my leg doesn't mean that my mind has gone. It doesn't mean that the gifts that God has given me cannot flourish and flower for his honor and glory. You know, and in this story here, the, the, the healing of this man echoes through eternity for the honor and glory of God. And one of the lessons for us is that those with physical disabilities are just as gifted by God, and we should value them and make space for them so they can serve God and they can use their gifts for his honor and his glory. And Jesus said to the man with the hand, come forward. And you can imagine the horror in this man's mind. Had he known that his handicap would become a a public spectacle, the chances are he would have stayed in bed that Sabbath morning, rolled over and hit the snooze button on the alarm clock. Nobody wants their physical disability to become the object of public focus and public attention. Yet he comes forward. I imagine that by implication, because Jesus says later, stretch out your hand, by implication he comes forward, but that withered hand is well and truly covered within the folds of his garments. I'm going to come forward, but I'm not going to put my withered hand on display for everybody to see. And Jesus asks a question. Verse 4, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? And in truth, this is two questions. The first half relates to the man, and the second half relates to Jesus. So let's deal with the first half of that question first. Is it lawful to do good, or is it lawful to do harm on the Sabbath? For Jesus, human need poses a moral imperative. Where good needs to be done, there can be no neutrality. And failure to do good when the opportunity arises is to contribute to human suffering or to perpetuate the evil around us. It is thus not simply permissible to heal on the Sabbath, it is morally right to heal on the Sabbath. Jesus is reorienting our thinking, so the Sabbath is not a day for lay activities, as in lying down and going to sleep. The Sabbath is a day to be a blessing to people, to lift the burdens that people suffer and carry on a day-by-day basis, many of which, like this uh, crippled man who is hiding his crippled hand under his clothes, Jesus is calling us to be a blessing, to help lift the burdens for those whose burdens are not immediately obvious. It implies that we know one another. We know what's going on in each other's lives. We're open about the challenges we're facing. As we're open about the challenges we're facing, we allow somebody else to come and lift those burdens. They are blessed and we are blessed. But if I live such a private life that I come to church and everything is just fine, thank you very much, and nobody has any idea that life is a private hell for me, how can I experience the blessing of God manifest through the ministry of a brother or sister in my life? And so Jesus says, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? By implication, it is lawful. It is not breaking the Sabbath to hurt, lift somebody's burdens. It is honoring the intent of the Sabbath day that people's burdens are lifted uh, during the Sabbath hours. The authority's reaction, though, is one of anger. In verse 5, it says, Jesus looked around at them with anger, 
Remember in chapter 3? Also in chapter 2, when Jesus said to the son, thy sins are forgiven thee, and then he looks around at the scribes and the Pharisees who are questioning in their hearts, who is it that can forgive sin? Only God can forgive sin. And Jesus looks around at them with anger in his heart. Now he looks around after another healing on the Sabbath day. He looks around at the rulers there, and he's grieved at the hardness of their heart. And so he says to the man, stretch out your hand. The authority's response to the man's silence is... Suffering is silence. For those religious leaders, true religion consists of theological correctness, matters of ritual cleanliness, purity, and the fulfilling of legal requirements. But Jesus is upset at the hardness of their hearts. The greatest enemy of divine love is not opposition or malice to God, but the hardness of the human heart and human willful indifference to the suffering of those around us. You might say that the test, the acid test of all theology is its response to the weakest and the most vulnerable within our midst. As God commanded, the Israelites were to take particular care of the widows, the orphans, the aliens within their midst, the single mothers struggling to pay their bills. And so Jesus now responds to such human suffering. The litmus test of true religion is its response to the suffering of those, your neighbors, your brothers, and your sisters. But the second half of the question of Jesus does not really relate to the man. He says, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? And this is the question where Jesus' use of his heavenly authority becomes deadly. What does it mean by to save life or to kill? The first half of the question refers to the withered man. Is it lawful to heal him on the Sabbath or not? But now Jesus is talking about himself. The man with a withered hand is merely a pawn in the hands of those religious leaders seeking to kill Jesus. Because if Jesus makes a habit of violating the Sabbath, the authorities will have every excuse to kill him. How Jesus responds to the man with the withered hand will determine the response of the authorities to his ministry. If he does not heal the withered hand, Jesus will be allowed to live. If Jesus does heal the withered hand, the authorities will seek his death. So Jesus commands the man with the withered hand to stretch it out. He says, he said to the man, stretch it out. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. This is the moment the man most feared, to expose his handicap to public glare, to have everybody glare at that withered hand like it's a curiosity. And uh, he's terrified, I imagine. And uh, Jesus says, stretch out your hand, and he stretches out his hand, and to his delight, he discovers that his hand was restored. And when it says his hand was restored, you can read that two ways. Either in the act of stretching it out, he discovers, oh, it was already healed when it was hidden, and by stepping out in faith, um, God, uh, um, Jesus, I, I, um, in, in stepping in, sorry, in stretching out my hand, it, I discovered that God had already healed my hand. Or in stretching out my hand as an act of faith, Jesus responds by healing it. You can read that verse two ways. But whatever way you read it, he stretched out his hand and his hand was restored. Just like with the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, faith is not a private confession of Jesus Christ. But it is taking a public risk, taking a public stand, standing up for Jesus when it matters, in front of a hostile audience, trusting that Jesus is indeed worthy of trust when no other hope or source of hope can be trusted. And Jesus' authority is deadly. In verse 6, it says, The Pharisees went out, and they immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now, the Pharisees, they were the keepers of the law. Uh, when, when the Greeks or the Seleucids had invaded um, Palestine 160 years before this happened or so, 
um, they had a ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes, and he determined that he was going to wipe out the Jewish faith, and so he sacrificed pigs in the temple, and he forced the religious leaders of the Jews to adopt um, Hellenistic or pagan ways. But a party arose in response to the persecution of the pagan Jews that is known to history as the Pharisees. They were the ones who stuck by the law. They were the heroes of the people of Israel, and many hundreds of them were slaughtered by the, by the Seleucids because they wouldn't break the Ten Commandments. So we give the Pharisees a bad rap, but for 160 years, they were the party of the law. They had stood up for the law. They had died for the law, as opposed to bowing down to the pagan gods of the Seleucids. So the Pharisees were known as the, the purists. But on the other hand, the, the Herodians, they were the, they were the party of perpetual power. You might say they were the ruling class of Washington, D.C. It doesn't matter what party the name label is. They're all the same people there all the time. And so with the Pharisees and the Herodians, they were normally at odds with each other. They were political enemies. The Herodians were accused of having sold out to the Romans. They ruled on behalf of the Romans with the Sadducees. And the Pharisees were the, were the loyal opposition. And these two groups, they didn't like each other at all. They hated each other. But now Jesus heals this man with a withered hand, and you have this bipartisan coalition, Pharisees and Herodians, Republicans, Democrats, Conservative and Labor, whichever way you want to describe it, now they are united in their hatred of Jesus Christ. And not only are they united in their hatred, but at the end of verse 6 it says they conspired how to destroy Jesus. Jesus' authority is used in a costly and a deadly manner to himself. In healing the leper, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus traded places with the leper and he bore the burdens of the leper. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus arise, causes the anger of the authorities by forgiving the paralytic of his sins and they're accusing him of blasphemy in their hearts, which is a charge worthy of death. But now in Mark chapter 3, they're openly conspiring to kill Jesus. The opposition to Jesus is growing within the religious establishment of his day. Jesus is giving his all, literally, that suffering humanity might be healed and reconciled with God. So Jesus, but Jesus does not plan to proclaim the good news on his own in this chapter. He wishes those who he has saved to be partners in the plan of salvation. And so he decides to call and to commission his disciples. And so whereas Jesus has a deadly authority, and it is deadly for himself, he also has a delegated authority. And these things work in D's as well, you notice. Disease, demons, and, and disciples in chapter 1. And it's easy to remember, I guess. We have here a deadly authority. And now we move to a delegated authority, Mark chapter 3 and verse 13. And uh, this is where Jesus calls the twelve, as was read for us, thank you, sister, in our scripture reading this morning. We read there in verse 13, it said, Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he wanted, and they came unto him. Now, we know but at this stage from the other Gospels that Jesus is being followed by a large number of crowds. These aren't just curious onlookers. We actually know some of their names. Joseph Barsabbas and Matthias, we know their names from Acts chapter 1, verse 21. We know that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph, Salome, they are also following Jesus. We know that from other parts of the Gospels. And yet, as he chooses to delegate his authority, he calls 12 from his wider following to serve as his apostles. And it says there in verse 13, he went up on a mountain. Mountains in the scriptures are signs of a revelation from God. Uh, Abraham met God at Mount Moriah. Uh, Mount Sinai was the stage where God met Moses and the people of Israel. 
Um, Elijah had the encounter with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Jesus had a revelation of his divine glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, and then he gave his most famous sermon of all on the Mount of Blessing by the Sea of Galilee, Matthew 5 through 7. Something important is about to happen, a revelation of God. It says there that Jesus summoned or called those whom he wanted. Disciples do not decide to follow Jesus to do him a favor. Jesus summons us by his heavenly and his divine authority. Our discipleship, our following of Jesus, is based on the call of Jesus alone. Without Jesus as the focus, there is no such thing as discipleship or even of Christian community. Now, rabbis in the time of Jesus invited their students to come and learn about the Torah from the rabbi, that is, the teachings of Moses. Rabbis did not call disciples to follow them personally. But disciples today are not called so much to focus on the Torah as the ultimate good, but they are called to focus on Jesus and to be with him, for he is the ultimate gift and good from God. Verses 14 and 15, it says, He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, and to be sent out to proclaim the message and to have authority to cast out Jesus. It says there to cast out demons. It says he made or he created 12. Uh, the, the language here echoes Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created or God made the heavens and the earth. Jesus is intending for his apostles and his disciples to be a new creation. You cannot say the gospel has come into my life if there has not been a change in your life. When the gospel enters your life, there is a change within your life at your innermost being. And so disciples are called in this passage, first and foremost, and verse 14 says there, to be with Jesus. Discipleship, therefore, is a relationship before it is a task. We are not God's beasts of burden. We are his beloved. Without that being with him, our subsequent service for God becomes dry and empty and lifeless. What discipleship does not consist in what disciples can do for Jesus, but what Jesus can make of us, what he sees in us, how he transforms us from sinners of today into saints for eternity. And so to become that new creation that Jesus wants us to be, we are called to spend time with him, to look for his presence, and to listen to his voice. Disciples in this verse are also sent out. We are called to be with him. We're also to be sent out to proclaim the word or the good news. Uh, disciples of Jesus are not silent. If nobody knows you're a disciple of Jesus, it's questionable whether you really are a disciple of Jesus. If somebody is a Pats fan, they'll tell you. If somebody is a Steelers fan, they'll tell you. If somebody was, comes from, if somebody is a Hoosier from Indiana, yes, or somebody's from California, they'll tell you. You can tell where somebody's from. You can tell the many of the values in their life from the way they dress, from the way they speak, and from the subject of their conversation. And disciples of Jesus are called first and foremost to spend time with Jesus, but that is not all that we are called to be do. We're also sent out to proclaim the message. It says here to proclaim the message or to proclaim the word. We are sent to share, to discuss, to announce, not the weather or the NFL or politics, but the good news of what God has done in our lives and what he may do in the lives of those with whom we are speaking. They share the story of Jesus. They share what Jesus is doing and has done for them. And the other thing that Jesus gave them was authority to cast out demons. The authority is given to cast out demons. Tragically, today, many professed followers of Jesus have turned into entertainment the things that Jesus died to save us from. 
Our minds, our hearts feast on the things that cause Jesus to go to Calvary. We allow demonic influences into our homes and our hearts. But in this passage here, we are called and given authority by Jesus Christ to overcome through his name the demonic forces that surround our homes. Disciples are not merely, are not merely defined by what we stand for, but what we stand against. We stand against the principality of Satan and his demons and the temptations he puts in our hearts. Disciples are called today to resist and to confront evil and demonic forces, not only in thought, but in action. And in verse 16, it says, So he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. These were guys with a fierce temper, apparently. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the Antifa activist, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is a very diverse group of men that Jesus calls to himself. There are 12, which is a reminder of the 12 tribes of Israel. And for Gentiles, it's a reminder that salvation indeed is of the Jews, as we read later in John 4:22. For the Jews, it's a reminder that, Jesus, that Israel fulfills its destiny only in relation to its service to Jesus. And what lessons can we learn about this, this, this group of 12 men uh, that Mark lists for us here? Well, firstly, Jesus called Matthew Levi and Simon the Zealot. Now, Matthew Levi, he was a tax collector. He was a collaborator with the Romans. And he calls Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were those who were zealous for getting rid of the Romans. And they were known for walking up in crowds with carved little daggers and, you know, giving someone between the ribs. And uh, that person would drop dead. These were sworn enemies. This was like he called a police officer in Portland and an Antifa rioter in Portland to follow him. These are diametrically opposed when Jesus calls people that are political, are historical, are ethnic, are religious, all the rest of it, the hatreds and animosities of the past are to melt away. That Jesus is creating a new humanity bonded together by a bond of heavenly love. Where it does not matter the past where we've come from, what matters is the future that we look forward to. When Jesus calls us political enmity, ethnic hatred, class and economic divisions are things of the past, Jesus calls us to be new creations, and rather than to bring the hatreds and animosities of the past into the kingdom of God, we are called to radiate the principles of the kingdom of God back to our fallen, broken, and painful world. We are now a new creation. The dividing lines of human society are done away with in the kingdom of God. Secondly, we know a lot about Simon Peter, don't we? We know about Thomas. Thomas was a twin. His name was Didymus. We read later in John's Gospel, it means he was a twin. He was a doubter. Unless I see the marks in his hands and put my finger in his side, I will not believe, said Doubting Thomas. And Jesus met Doubting Thomas's acid test. But look at some of the other names there. Bartholomew. Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanian. Does anybody know what these guys actually did after the resurrection? In the book of Acts onwards, does anybody know where these guys went? Now, sure, there are traditions around the world. Some say that some of them went to North India, some of them went to Bengal, uh, Calcutta, some of them went to Armenia, some of them went down to uh, Africa, to Ethiopia. Uh, nobody really knows what these other apostles did. We know about James and John and Simon, Peter, and Thomas. We can talk about those till the cows come home, but these other names, we simply don't know where they went or what they did. It's a reminder to us that the existence of God church today 
is indebted to the faithful labors of those who are unheralded in public, those who are relatively unknown, who minister in relative silence, who do not gain public applause or plaudits. There are no plinths erected to Bartholomew, as far as I know, anywhere in the world, other than the St. Bartholomew Day's massacre in Paris back in the 1500s, and that's not a really good reason to remember Bartholomew, is it? But there are no plinths to Thaddeus, as far as I know, anywhere in the world today. It's a reminder to us today that the kingdom of God is just as valuable for those who are preachers like Simon Peter and for those who are deacons and those who clean the pews and those who make the potlucks and those who make sure the heating is working on a weekly basis in the church. God has space for everybody in his kingdom. And some are public and some are private. Some are applauded and some are unheralded, but they are all necessary for the kingdom of God. We also see in this, this little discussion about these 12 disciples that Jesus calls Judas Iscariot. My version says, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. It's like There's an emphasis from Mark. Like Mark wants us to know that, and he also managed to call Judas Iscariot, the man who betrayed Jesus Christ. On the night that Judas betrayed Jesus, Jesus brought in the new covenant. We learn from this passage here that disciples are not perfect. In fact, Judas Iscariot we see in John 6, Jesus says, into one of you is a diabolos, John 6, 65, that uh, Jesus knew from day one that Judas Iscariot was experiencing demonic harassment, in fact, demonic control. And yet Jesus still called this demonized man to be his, his disciple. In fact, he was the treasurer of the disciples. You might say that even a conference treasurer might experience demonic possession. I'm not suggesting we do have conference treasures like that, but the point is, that even a conference treasurer might experience demonization, and Jesus still sees a role for that individual. The lesson here is that Jesus doesn't just see who we are today. He sees who we may be tomorrow. He doesn't condemn us for what we are, the baggage we bring. We all bring baggage. He doesn't condemn us for the personal mosaic of sin, the configuration of sin in our lives, as it, when he met the paralytic in Mark 2, he said, Son, thy sins are forgiven thee. As we discussed last week, there's nothing more distinctive about a person than the, the, the configuration of sin within their lives. Jesus does not condemn us for our past. He sees what we may become by the grace of God. And if you look through the 12 Gospels, notice this, Jesus never fired one of his disciples. Never fired them. They would argue about who was the greatest. They failed to cast out demons. He chided them for their lack of faith, their lack of belief. Oh, yes, these were not perfect men. But nowhere did Jesus ever fire a disciple. He always worked with his disciples. He always hoped that tomorrow would be better than today. And, and if you're a parent, you understand this, do you not? Your children may mess up today, but you have hope that tomorrow things will be better. And you don't discard your children, no matter what their performance is today, because you love them and you pray that tomorrow will be a better day. And that's how Jesus treats his disciples. He does not fire his, his faulty, faithless disciples. He works with them and he grows them. And he allows them to go through good and bad experiences, bad, because he's wanting to shape us and to grow us into the image of Jesus Christ. We pray that he will bring to completion the good work that is necessary in us and you'll bring that good work to completion by the day of Jesus Christ, as Paul says to the church of Philippi. And so this is a deadly authority of Jesus. It is also a delegated authority. Jesus delegates his authority to his disciples, and by extension, he delegates that authority to us today. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is where Jacob, this old, old man, he's a frail old man, 
He's, he brought, he's brought in with his walking frame in front of Pharaoh, the President Trump of his era. Remember that story, the end of the book of Genesis? And it says there that Jacob, a man from a despised ethnic group, with a despised profession because the Egyptians hated shepherds, says that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Can you remember that story there? That Jacob blessed Pharaoh. You see, it doesn't matter what ethnic background you have. It doesn't matter what job you may have. We operate and live under the authority of the God of heaven of the creator of the universe. We are his representatives in society. We are his, his champions in the disputes of the world. We are called to represent him, no matter how the world may look down on who we are or, or our background or our job or whatever it may be. We have been given an authority by Jesus Christ. And Jesus is asking us to use that authority in his name, to be faithfully representing him, to inject the presence of Jesus into the conversations we go through on a daily basis. Tragically, as Christians, we live in two worlds, do we not? We have what we do on Sabbath and what we do in the rest of the week. And what we do in Sabbath, we can believe whatever you want within the confines of the four walls of the church. But the moment you leave church, it seems that we walk into a secular world. And we have to abide by the principles of a secular world in whatever our calling or profession in life may happen to be. And people say, how can I be a Christian as a software programmer? How can I be a Christian as, a, as an engineer? How can I be a Christian as a teacher? Well, we are called not just to be, uh, live according to secular principles Sunday through Friday and biblical principles on Sabbath, but we are called to bring the principles of the kingdom of God and let them diffuse our daily lives so people know that we have spent time with Jesus Christ. I want to challenge us to think about how we do that in practice in our lives. Being a Christian in public life doesn't just mean being honest with your tax returns. It means being the very presence of Jesus in your workplace, looking out for the marginalized, lifting up those who are hungry and hurting and poor and thirsty, and being a, speaker, being a champion for those who cannot speak up for themselves, lifting people and lifting human burdens. That is what Jesus did. That is what he called us to do as well. So Jesus gives us a delegated authority, and nowhere in the Gospels or in the New Testament does Jesus call that authority back to himself. Nowhere does he rescind the call to be his representatives to a fallen and dying planet. That, that authority extends today. It extends to each one of us in our role and wherever God has placed us within his vineyard. But then we come to the fact that this is a disputed authority. And we come here to Mark chapter 3 and verse the end of verse 19, it says, Then Jesus went home, and the crowd came together again, so they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, he's gone out of his mind. So the scene here is that Jesus comes home to Capernaum, or we believe it's Capernaum, and he comes to his home, and there's a crowd gathered around it, so there's such a big crowd that they cannot even eat. When his family heard it, they come out to restrain him. They say, Jesus, something's going wrong here. You're going crazy. Jesus, we like you, we want to follow you, but your teachings, um, they might cause offense, they might cause a possibility of rejection. And so in the mind of the family of Jesus, it was better to control him, to repackage him, to section him, we might say in England, to put him in a mental health institution, lock him away somewhere, so that we can repackage him into a Jesus that the world will accept and will not arise the anger of the authorities in our world. We want an anodyne Jesus, an empty Jesus, a powerless Jesus. That's how this passage starts. And if you drop down to verse 31, you have another story that says exactly the same thing. So then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. So the family are here. He's sitting in the house. A crowd was sitting around him. So he's in a house. There is his family. 
and there are, um, there's a crowd, just the same as verses 19 and 20. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And Jesus replied, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those around him, he said, here are my mother and here are my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, this is what theologians call a sandwich construction. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Mark, what Mark does repeatedly through the gospel, and I did challenge you, if you want something to do this afternoon, look through the gospel of Mark, sorry, Mark, and you will see this, this construction appearing repeatedly. Now, this here is a sandwich. Yes? We all recognize this as a sandwich. But if I were to say to you, would you like this sandwich? Before you say yes, you want to know not whether there's bread on the outside, but what do you want to know? What's on the inside? You see, a sandwich is defined not by the bread, but by what's on the inside. If I were to say to you, this is a PB&J, you say, oh, thank you very much. I say, Peter shakes his head. You wouldn't like it, Peter? No. All right. So um, most um, school-age kids, you say PB&J. Yes, thank you very much. That's my favorite food. Now, my favorite sandwich is in here. And um, this, is, this is the food of the gods, you might say. It has bread on the outside, which is, uh, that adds kind of structure to it, and it adds strength to it. But on the inside, I have raw onion and I have marmite. It's absolutely delicious. And, I see Andy likes it. Andy, Andy is um, partially sanctified, being from Australia, and uh, he needs to be from England to be a full sanctification. Uh, but, uh, but Aussies and Brits like marmite. Marmite is like black margarine. It's one of the most salty things you'll ever taste. It's made out of, made out of yeast, and it tastes absolutely delicious. And at the end of a meal, if my wife says, well, would you like um, a cookie or something? No, 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 nothing. I don't like cake. I don't like cookie. I really don't like chocolate. If you give me a chocolate cookie, then it's an act of self-denial to force it down. It's an act of the will to force it through my lips. And so what I really have a weakness for is bread a slice of bread with marmite on it and then a slice of raw onion on it. It's absolutely delicious. It's a sign of a mature palate, in case you're wondering. The point, why am I talking about this, though, is that verses 19 and 20, you have a scene where Jesus is at home with his family around him thinking he's gone crazy and he's surrounded by a crowd. And then in verse 31 through 35, you have exactly the same scene again. All the key components are there. These are the two slices of the sandwich. They're trying to control him. They say that we have authority over you, Jesus. We're going to lock you up. We're going to tie you down. We're going to take you away for re-education. We're going to commit you to a mental health institution. We have authority over you, Jesus. That's the message of the pieces of bread. But the, the real meaning is in the meat. Not literally. This is PB&J, I think. The real meaning is what's between the bread. And that's where we come to the story of Beelzebub and Jesus. It says there in verse 22, And the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, like America today, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then, indeed, the house can be plundered. 
The scribes are the opponents of Jesus. They're following him from, G- from Jerusalem, wherever he goes, to accuse him. No longer are they posing insinuating questions in their hearts, such as, why does his fellow speak like this in Mark 2? But now their opposition is open to Jesus, and they say, he has Satan or Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons he is casting out demons. They do not accuse Jesus of being an, an imposter, nor do they deny the ability of Jesus to cast out demons. Rather, they ascribe the source of the power of Jesus to Satan rather than to his heavenly Father. Their malicious judgment is proof that faith and disbelief are not dependent upon miracles. One may see miracles and remain confirmed in stubborn disbelief. One may never see a miracle and remain de- um, deeply rooted in a profound faith. However, whether one sees a miracle or hears the word of Jesus, a decision must be made, and that decision must be made by all of us today and those of us watching online. Is Jesus coming from Satan, or is Jesus coming from God? And there are consequences to the answer that you give to that fundamental question. Is Jesus from Satan, or is Jesus from God? Each and every one of us through life must make that basic decision, and then we must act upon the consequences of that decision. If Jesus is indeed from God... How do I respond with living faith? Or am I going to respond with willful, stubborn, obstinate disbelief? Jesus responds them with simple logic. If the work of Jesus is diametrically opposed to Satan, how can Jesus be empowered by Satan? If Jesus truly is empowered by Satan, as the scribes are insinuating, then Satan's kingdom cannot stand. And the evidence of the last 2,000 years of human history would suggest that Satan's kingdom is still standing today. Jesus, indeed, when he talks about uh, no, you cannot enter a strong man's hand, house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then the house can be plundered. Well, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus defeated Satan in the wilderness. And because he defeated Satan in the wilderness, he can go through his ministry setting free the captives of Satan. Jesus defeated sin on Calvary, but he defeated Satan in the showdown in the wilderness in Mark chapter 1, or later again in Matthew's gospel. And so Jesus can go around setting people free from satanic oppression or possession or harassment because Jesus has first tied up Satan and Satan is helpless before Jesus Christ. And somebody should say amen to that. And so Jesus' plundering of Satan's dominion is a sign that God's presence has broken into human life. Jesus says in verse 28, truly, truly, I say unto you. Now, whenever you see in the Gospels the expression, truly, truly, I say unto you, This is what scholars call a gnomic statement, G-N-O-M-I-C, gnomic statement. And what is a gnomic statement? Uh, Whenever you see truly, truly I say unto you, or verily, verily I say unto you, Jesus is pulling back the curtain and he's speaking as the judge of humanity, the judge of all mankind. He's revealing to us what the judge is thinking about. Now, if you go to court, wouldn't you like to know what your judge thinks about the, the matter? Wouldn't you like to know what makes the judge tick? Wouldn't you like to know what your judge's priorities are? You know, many years ago, my mother-in-law was sued um, for, a very, for a, an unfair reason, and uh, the, the, the person suing her paid money to the judge and told my mother-in-law, this was in the former Soviet Republic, my mother-in-law was expecting to be convicted by the judge because money had changed hands. That judge had an interest in money. By God's grace, on the morning of the case, that person had a heart attack and died. And we thank God for that. You see, it is important to know the heart of the judge, but God intervenes at times, thankfully in that case, in a very direct way. But in this case here, Jesus is speaking as the judge of mankind, and he says, Fee people will be forgiven for their sins, and whatever blasphemies they utter, we say, Amen, we are all sinners. But 
Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they had said, Jesus has an unclean spirit. This is the sin against the Holy Spirit that we speak about, otherwise known as the unforgivable sin. It is a specific judgment. The unforgivable sin directly is the judgment that Jesus was motivated by Satan rather than by God, that he was empowered by Satan rather than by God, and therefore we are to reject him. That is the specific nature of the unforgivable sin. But more broadly, anyone who, through persistent rejection of the promptings of the Holy Spirit, and they can no longer distinguish good from evil, darkness from light, and light from darkness, is now beyond the possibility of repentance. As Isaiah said, it woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. And Jesus did not warn the masses about the unforgivable sin. He warned the religious leaders of his time, those who sat in synagogue every Sabbath, those who were faithful in returning their tithes, those who gave to the poor fund of the synagogue, those who made the three annual pilgrimages to the temple of Jerusalem. It is precisely to the outwardly religious, the inwardly self-righteous that Jesus speaks, those who are most susceptible to the unforgivable sin. Spiritual pride, self-righteousness, and a sense of one's own worthiness and lack of sinfulness This all closes our heart to the promptings of the Spirit. And if we are not repenting of our sins, may lead us after years of willful rejection from the promptings of the Spirit to the place where we no longer hear the voice of the Spirit in our lives. And now we haven't committed the unforgivable sin because we no longer sense our need for repentance. Our time is up here. So what would we say in conclusion on this chapter? Well, so far, as we're making this journey through Mark's Gospel, Um, we are presented with the unique and God-given authority of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He has authority over the demons. He has authority over disease. He has authority over disciples. But beyond that, his authority is a deadly authority. It's deadly for Jesus because Jesus exercises authority on our behalf, knowing that it's going to be deadly for him. You know, perhaps uh, another powerful verse in the Word of God is in in Genesis chapter 2, where the Lord God made man and Adam out of the dust of the ground. So the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And in so doing, he gave himself the kiss of death. Jesus exercises his authority in a way that is deadly to himself. His authority is a delegated authority. Jesus calls disciples to himself to be with him in order that he might send them out to represent him. We today bear that delegated authority. We're not just merely members of Village Seventh-day Adventist Church, whichever church we happen to be this morning. We are the delegated disciples of Jesus Christ. We are his representatives in a fallen world. He is personally sending us out beyond these four walls at the end of this service to represent him in a dying world. And his authority is disputed. For Jesus in this passage here and throughout history is the dividing figure of human history. You may say that Jesus is not important But um, you were born on a certain birth date, were you not? Your birthday is calculated from the time of Jesus, is it not? I was born in 1972. That means I was born 1972 years after the time of Jesus. My first social security check will come um, at a certain date from the time of Jesus. My wedding was a certain date from the time of Jesus. My birthdays are a certain date from the time of Jesus. Every paycheck is calculated on the month of the year from the time of Jesus. Every important event in my life is calculated in reference to Jesus Christ. And we say he's not important. He is the dividing figure of human history. It's a disputed authority because we must come to our own decision. Even today, 
Where does Jesus come from? If he truly is from God, and he does so far in this gospel what only God can do, then how do we respond? In faith or in willful rejection? In this chapter here, disciples have three characteristics. Firstly, when he called the disciples, then we are to, he says, he, he appointed 12 whom he named apostles, firstly, to be with him. So disciples spend time with Jesus. How's your prayer life these days? How's your reading of the word of God? This um, delightful sandwich here, onion and marmite, it does me no good sitting on the pew here, on the pulpit, does it? I actually need to chew into it. I need to turn it over in my mouth. I need to turn it over repeatedly, then swallow it by faith, trusting that what my wife gave me was not poison, but was good for me. I need to let it do what only it can do in my life. Jesus is calling us to spend time with him. That's our first responsibility as his followers. If you're not spending time with him, then may day to day be the day when you start to spend time with Jesus. Read one of his stories and ask yourself, what, does, what is Jesus saying to me here? What is Jesus asking of me in this text? Is there a promise for me in this text that I can build today upon? Is there a challenge in this text where Jesus is calling me to change my life? Spend time with Jesus. The second thing of disciples is that it says he sent them out to proclaim the message. Jesus doesn't just call us to chew on the word. With the energy that the word gives us, he expects us to labor for him, to be co-laborers in the gospel commission. He's asking us to share with the world what Jesus means for us. He's not asking us to be inactive Christians, to be in the reserve forces. He's calling us to be on the front lines for him wherever he calls us to live. And thirdly, disciples of Jesus are obedient to God's revealed will. We step out in faith. We have the authority to cast out demons. We are to spend time in the word of God, and we are the ambassadors for Jesus Christ today. And it is through following Jesus today that we are adopted into the family of God. We're not only co-laborers with Jesus in humanity's salvation, but we are co-heirs of the, of the gifts of salvation. We have the promise that one day we will live in a world where there are no more paralytics or lepers, no more diseased individuals or people coming to church with withered hands who hide it in shame for fear of what people may say about them. We have the promise that one day all things will be made new again, that every tear will be wiped away, that death and disease and suffering will be no more, and the sea will give up her dead, as you read in Revelation 21. We have the promise that there is a new heavens and a new earth coming, and we are citizens of that kingdom. We're not just citizens of the United States of America. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven above from where we are expecting our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may that day come soon, when all things will be made new again, and the disciples of Jesus will no longer need to live in a world of sin, but will live in a world of joy and peace and love. Until that day comes, be faithful to him. Spend time with Jesus. Represent Jesus in your world. In the name of Jesus, conquer the forces of Satan. And be true to Jesus in every decision you make. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.